This is the Horse Radio Network. Welcome to Season 2 of the Horse Nutrition Podcast presented by Purina Animal Nutrition. In this season, we take you on a compelling journey filled with the stories of extraordinary horses doing amazing jobs. We hope that you will come away empowered and entertained, along with advice and knowledge on how to best feed these incredible equine companions. This is Lisa Wysocki from Nashville, Tennessee. I am an award-winning author, editor, equine clinician, and motivational speaker who trains horses for and consults with therapeutic riding programs, and I'm your host for Season 2 of the Horse Nutrition Podcast presented by Purina. Today, we bring you the story of a unique horse named Kodak who lives in Maine. If you've ever been there, you might think of it as a very cold place with big, deep, crusty piles of snow. But as you'll soon hear, that isn't always the case. Yes, winter can be very bitter and cold there, while summers can be beautiful, but summer nights can be chilly too. After all, it is Maine. I recently learned that Maine's nickname is Vacation Land. Lots of tourists vacation there, and sometimes people who are unfamiliar with the outdoors are out having fun in very remote areas. There's also a lot of hunting in Maine, and there's an aging population, so medical events or even dementia can cause people to become stranded or maybe even lost in the woods. And Maine definitely has a lot of woods. 89% of the state is covered in forest land, and that's more than 17 million acres. I can't even imagine. That's amazing. It's a lot of forest to get lost in, so you might imagine how easy it might be to lose your way. If you do, though, rest assured that help will soon be on the way. Whenever someone goes missing in the Maine wilderness, the Maine Mounted Search and Rescue Team is one of 16 units that could be called in to help you, but it's the only unit that uses horses. The Maine Mounted Search and Rescue is a nonprofit professional volunteer organization, and their members perform support services, ground search, mounted searches, and they're solely on call to the Maine Warden Service. And they work solely in Acadia National Park. As volunteers, they supply their own equipment and even donate their transportation, fuel, and time. These are people who just go out and they want to help other people. Often, those calls come in the middle of the night and the horse and rider rescue teams have to mobilize very quickly and then drive up to four hours to a base camp location. But these are not any horse and rider teams. These teams are trained and certified together to do this amazing work. A lot can happen in the Maine wilderness, especially as Acadia National Park encompasses 47,000 acres. Today, we're talking to two team members of this special search and rescue team, Darcy Maine Boynton and Sharon Kenny. So, Darcy, what kind of horse makes a really good search and rescue horse? Actually, there are lots of different kinds of horses that can make great search and rescue horses. They don't have to be bomb-proof. They don't have to be completely calm, but a really nice calm horse will definitely do the job well. They can also be very sensitive and reactive. That's fine. The key is the partnership, the communication between the horse and the rider. As long as that rider has good control over that horse and can bring the horse's mind back quickly, then that horse is going to be able to work to get it there. That is just Amazing because you think of this search and rescue horse as being very calm and bomb proof, but that's really not the case. I think that's amazing. And so, Sharon, what kind of situations do the horses have to be able to tolerate? I'm assuming that there are all different kinds of noises and lights and sounds that these horses have to become accustomed to. 
Yeah, I mean, we tend to throw things at them in training that's a little more extreme than they run to on searches. We had a training once with Bill Ritchie from the National Mounted Patrol Services, where they did everything from walk through a line of pool noodles, which you wouldn't really ever encounter on a search, to walking through fire, which, again, we would hope we'd never encounter. But the point being that desensitization and partnership building. But we have on searches had helicopters and drones land right next to our horses. We've had to pretty much gallop our horses down the sandy shoulder of a paved two-lane windy road with a thunderstorm coming in after us. And we've had sirens and lights, emergency vehicles go by us. So it's just diversification of training and, and partnership building. Yeah, and I think that's just phenomenal that you really set up these horses for success and you prepare them so well. And I know you have to go through some pretty rigorous training to become certified. And either one of you or both of you, if you could tell us some details about all you have to do to become certified as a team. Sure. The horse and rider unit get a whole lot of challenges over the course of a day and overnight. So they start the day with First, having the horse stand in the, in the trailer when they arrive, and they have to just stand quietly for 15 minutes because if the horse can't do that, they're probably not ready to do any search and rescue because there is a lot of standing around that happens on site. Then the horses get unloaded. They get packed up, and we watch to make sure that the gear is all going on correctly, that they have the right gear, and that the horse is being calm and, and polite throughout all of that. Then the horse and rider get judged in a ring where they're doing things like walk, trot, canter. They're being ponied and ponying another horse. They're taking off a raincoat, handing it from one person over to another person, reading a map, doing all sorts of things on horseback that we would be doing out in the woods just to see how the horses react to that. They're taking it all in in stride. And then as that's going on, we throw a few crazy things at them, like a clown might come running into the ring while this is going on with the clown waving their hands and screaming just to create a big distraction. At wow. some point through the yeah, wow. At some point <laughs> in the middle of that, there'll also be a gun fired nearby. And that will make the horses react. There's no horse that doesn't react when they hear that. But the key is all in uh, how quickly the rider calms that horse back down and, and gets it back under control. Right. And then once the once the ring portion is done, we send the person out on a, a short mock search where they're actually riding in the woods looking for clues, mimicking exactly what we would do out on an actual search. And there is a person hidden out in the woods that they are ultimately looking to try to find. They're trying to find as many clues as they can. So the horse is needing to be calm throughout all of that. There's an ATV that's running. There may be a chainsaw or a weed whacker or other things that the horse goes by. So it's not just a matter of the rider's concentration looking for things, but it's also the horse taking all of this in stride and being able to continue on. Once the riders complete that part, there's a portion where they get on and off trailers. So first of all, the owner has to trailer their, they'll put their own horse on their own trailer. But then after that, another handler that's unknown to the horse takes over the horse, leads it around, and then puts it on new trailers that the horse has never been exposed to before. So for example, if the horse is used to a ramp load, it's a straight load trailer, then they're going to go put them on a slant load that's a step up if, if, you know, if we have one available. Because we really want to make sure that that horse in an emergency situation, if we only have one trailer for some reason to get horses out of a certain situation, we need to make sure that that horse is going to go on any trailer that's put in front of it. Well, that's um, a real trust issue for the horse. I mean, the, the horse has to accept a, a brand new trailer, a different load, and a, a brand new handler that they may or may not know. That's huge exactly. for the horse. And I will say that's, that's often one of the harder challenges for, for most of the horses. <laughs> 
certainly for my horse, that was a bigger challenge that I had to work on in advance than many of the other items. One of the other things that I think a few people have told me was new to them was ponying because it's something that many of us don't do a whole lot. It's not a particularly tough thing to learn, but it's something that uh, might be different than what you normally do with your horse. And then after that, there's a a day ride that uh, is a long trail ride going through all sorts of obstacles, including water and and other things, and again, walking, trotting, and cantering on that. And then there's actually a a nighttime ride as well where the horse goes out after dark, no lights on, and you're navigating through the woods trails again with horses with no light. We do put glow sticks on them so we can see each other, but not enough to actually throw any light for the horses to see. And they do typically a great job at that. And then the horses have to camp out with the human overnight, so the horses are highlined overnight. So there's there's quite a quite a lot to the test. It's pretty rigorous. Well, I'm thinking how many listeners are listening to this thinking, is my horse going to be able to do that? And probably 98% of them are going to say no, <laughs> that their horses are not going to be able to do half of what you've just described. And Sharon, I know each search is unique, but walk us through a typical search and rescue day that involves you and your horse. I know you might get called out early and have to drive a long way, but tell us what what actually goes on. So typically we don't get a whole lot of notice that there will be a search. So we typically get a call in the middle of the night. It could be two in the morning. So then we have to go out and catch the horse in the middle of the night, which some horses are a little more predisposed to let you do. <laughs> and then <laughs> and then hopefully we've got, most of us tend to keep most of our things in the trailer during the search season. So we shouldn't have to do a whole lot of prep time. It could just be go out and get the horse, make sure the brush box is on the trailer. And so they, they go within 10 minutes, they're eating grass to standing on the trailer and they have to kind of be able to mentally adjust to that. It could be up to a four-hour ride to get to the command post. And then once they get there, they could be standing on the trailer for another one or three hours waiting for us to get an assignment. Sometimes there's time and there's room to unload them and stretch their legs. Sometimes there isn't. Sometimes when we get the assignment, we may have to combine into fewer trailers for the trip to the staging area because there's not always a lot of room there. So that, again, it's another reason why they have to be able to load and unload easily from all different kinds of trailers. And as Darcy mentioned, while searching, they might carry as much as 40 pounds of gear in addition to their tack and their rider. Most of it is done at a slow walk unless they're asked otherwise. We might have an out and back in Maine. There's a lot of logging roads. Mm -hmm. So if we're doing what's called a hasty search, we might be going down a logging road, searching both sides on our way out, and then we get to the dead end or to the, the outreach areas of our search box, and then we come back at a faster pace. They might be asked to tie to a tree while their rider either checks something out on foot or actually there was one search. We have a picture of this. There were three of our horses tied to very little more than twigs in probably as close as you could tie three horses in the middle of a trail is how close they were standing for over an hour while their riders assisted with a downed horse injury. And on any given search, so we might have helicopters flying overhead or emergency vehicles zooming past them on the road with lights and sirens going. I mean, it really could be just about anything. Okay. So when you're coming back at a faster pace, I'm assuming that you're still keeping your eyes open and you're still searching and on the lookout for whoever you're looking for. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then when a subject is found, what happens then? So... 
If we were to find someone who was alive and in need of medical attention, then typically we would have one person who would get off and hand their horse to the other person. We have groups of two or three that go out together. And the person who left would be assisting, you know, providing medical attention to the search subject. Meanwhile, the person who stays with the horses is keeping them calm, calling in um, on the radio to talk to the command post about what's going on, what, what's needed for resources. And the horses are just expected to be in park. They are chilling, <laughs> just yeah. paying attention to what's going on, but not fighting with each other, standing calmly. And then do ambulances or ATVs come in as needed to kind of transport the person back to the staging area? Yes. We have talked about the possibility of using our horses to transport the victims, but that involves all sorts of other complicating factors. And so far, we've not ended up in a situation where an ATV wasn't available to come close enough for uh, people to be evacuated. Got it. And then how many times are you called out during the year? You know, that really varies. There are, I think in the average year, the Maine Warden Service reports to over 400 search requests, but they only call the Maine Association for Search and Rescue teams a fraction of that time. Maybe in an average year, maybe 20 times when you take out the specialized rescues done by some of the rope teams. Our team in particular, our top year, we were called out maybe 12 times. But we've had a year or two where we basically got no calls. I mean, we might have had one or two, but then we were called off before we had to respond. Oh, wow. Now, I'm so interested to hear about both your horses. But first, let's talk about Darcy, your horse, Gulliver. So Gulliver is a 15 two-hand court horse. He's 15 years old. He's been doing this since 2015, so the last four years. When I got him, he was quite young, and this is something that I thought I would like to do with him someday, but I had really thought I needed a few more years to train him, and it was because of taking him to National Police Horse Training just out of fun. I went to a desensitization training, and my horse really amazed me. I went to it assuming I would never walk through fire or through smoke bombs, that my horse wouldn't possibly do that, but that it would still be great training, and instead, he walked right through bravely and was the first one to do so and impressed me so much that I decided he needed to have a job and we really needed to try the next thing. And, and so certain rescue was that next thing for him. So his personality, is he kind of uh, in a horse who's a little bit more reactive or is he a little bit more on the laid back side? He's very much laid back. He's the typical core horse that if he does spook, it's a, very, a really big spook, but it's very, very rare. And he has to become pretty unglued before he would actually spook. So for the most part, he just takes things in and has a lot of trust in me. And he's just pretty calm, laid back guy. That's awesome. Because I think from what I'm hearing, it really does take an entire team of horses with very unique skill sets individually to make up a really good search and rescue team. I think that's a really good point. You know, the, the more horses we have with different personalities, the more we can do. And we all learn from each other. And so it is really a team effort. There isn't one horse that's ideal, that's perfect. It's when we have lots of different horses with different strengths and different skills, that's when we have a really great unit. And so Sharon, your horse, Kodak, is the exact opposite, I hear, of Gulliver. Let's, let's hear a little bit about Kodak because he has the most amazing story. Okay. So Kodak is a roughly 12-year-old gelding. He's pinto and he's gated, and that's kind of all we know about him. His age even is, is a guess. He looks and he moves like a spotted saddle horse. He's 14-1. He's got the big head and, and you know, the typical markers. <laughs> 
his, his head doesn't match his body. Let's just put it that way. And we have had some clues that he might have come from a trail string down somewhere in the southeast, maybe in the mountains. I bought him from a dealer who specialized in selling, quote unquote, safe trail horses to older riders. But when I went to see him, he, he was immediately, I noticed he was very skittish and very reactive, but he would if you didn't mess with him, he would tie for hours without pawing or fidgeting. He was solid on the trail even when he was alone. He had really big feet, nice thick bone, good just general conformation, and he was cuddly when he could get over the fact that, you know, you were trying to saddle him with some evil <laughs> thing. And so I was I was pretty much afraid to leave him there because I could really see him landing in the wrong kind of home because a, jo- a horse like that really needs a job and some really matter-of-fact handling. The woman who had him was tiptoeing around him and just making him think like he was right, that he should be afraid. So I bought him in the, uh, January of 2016, and I worked with him just a little bit from January to March, but I mean, we're in Maine, so there's a lot of snow here in the winter, sure. so I wasn't able to do a whole lot. Um, I might have ridden him in those three months, maybe a handful of times. I mostly did some groundwork and some trailer loading and a few rides where we were just walking and turning and stopping and trying mm-hmm. to figure out how to be a, a responsible, <laughs> uh, you know, filling in some of those gaps, let's just say. And he was making really great progress, and he was showing me that he could retain lessons in between sessions and maybe even improve on them in his sleep, if you know what I mean. That's always um, good. Yeah. Uh, in fact, he taught himself how to side pass up to my trailer fender so I could get on. It was amazing. I, I'm still floored by it. But anyway, in, in April, somehow this doofus managed to yank three teeth out of his lower jaw, and we still don't know how he did it, but the vet wired two of them back in, and now he's oh. got a gap. He looks like Cletus. And <laughs> He spent um, April and May of that year confined to his stall and then a little run-in lean-to attached to it so that I could give him his twice-a-day antibiotics because I couldn't catch him very well. And it wasn't going to be getting any easier to catch him if I had to catch him and give him drugs. He wasn't going to like that. (laughs) So I didn't ride him at all for those two months. And then once he was released from that in late June, I was able to take him to the mounted team evaluation. I, I cannot believe it, but he actually passed with almost a perfect score. I should say we, because it's a test of us as a team. Sure. And and I really, we talked about the loading onto the strange trailer thing. He he nailed it. I, I can't, still can't understand how he so quickly nailed it because when I brought him home, he was very hesitant on the trailer thing. But anyway, so that went really, really well. And I couldn't believe it because it had been such a short period of time that I'd really been working with him. But do you think, though, that your daily interactions with him helped you bond with him and helped him gain some trust in you as a, as a new owner? I think so. I think he he knew kind of in his heart that I was trying to help him, even though what I was doing wasn't all that pleasant. So yeah, it absolutely could have helped. Yeah, well, losing three teeth can't be very pleasant either. So you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm <laughs> sure it wasn't. He was actually in the vet hospital for a week during oh, that time period. Wow. Now, when we talked earlier, you told me that Kodak has a really special skill that a lot of horses on the trail, search and rescue horses, maybe don't have or aren't as visible in what they do. Tell us a little bit about that. Because Kodak is a really what I call sensitive or reactive horse, he's just louder about communicating the things that he notices. Horses are prey animals. 
every horse out there that's being trail ridden is noticing a good portion of what every other horse is noticing, but they may be communicating things differently or less obviously or not communicating them at all, or the rider may not know how to read the communications that they're getting. Kodak, he notices everything, he communicates everything, and now that we've had some training, he is really coming into his own as far as being able to actually actively seek out humans from their scent. We started in the late summer of 2016, which was, again, it's only a couple of months after we were evaluated successfully as a mounted team. We did a, an equine air scenting clinic with Terry Nowaki, who is literally the man who invented that uh, wow. training method. So, um, so let's just stop and back up for just a second. So yeah. Kodak, when you're talking about air scenting, Kodak can smell a human some distance away and lets you know, just kind of like a bloodhound. Right. Most horses can smell them. Most horses who can smell them can also indicate that they've smelled them, but some of them indicate more than others, and right. then the rider has to interpret that. So I'm not here saying that Kodak can do anything particularly special. I'm just saying that because of his reactive and sensitive and communicative nature, mm-hmm. he tends to be louder about it <laughs> than yeah. other horses so, are. So when he runs into or he smells a human, what, what are his physical reactions to that? Sure. So he might start just by speeding up. His really obvious ones are that he'll give like a loud snort, blow, like rattling sound. He'll drop his nose right to the ground when the scent is low. If it's not, then obviously he won't. He'll keep his nose wherever the scent is in the air. But when he's really right at the scent source, he will turn into the woods regardless of where the trail goes. He will just take a right angle turn and just start walking into the woods. And then the other thing that he does, which he actually does often, even when we're just out trail riding, he swings his head and neck from left to right, like very exaggeratedly. Really? It, at this point, oh yeah, it, at this point, it makes him walk like a drunken sailor, <laughs> uh, which I, <laughs> I need to train him out of that. I want him to walk in a straight line. Um, but I, I have discovered through this process that I don't want to train him out of the neck swing or what they call head cast in air scenting, because that is one of his big indicators. When you have that on its own, yeah, it's just him being him. But when you have that in combination with the rattling blow or in yeah. combination with whatever else it is, that's when I need to pay attention. Wow. That's just amazing. And I think probably a lot of us have maybe had that experience with our horses and just haven't even realized what that was. Maybe we're on the trail and the horse is reacting a little bit oddly and the horse is just telling us that somebody else or something else is close by. That's phenomenal. Right. And then the other two key pieces about this training that I have to put in here is what we're doing is we're encouraging the horse to show those behaviors specifically when they smell human scent. And then the other thing we're doing is we're letting them take control. So when they tell us, hey, I got it, mom, we're putting our hands down and we're letting the horse go follow that scent. And that is the part that's brand new to a lot of horses. Usually the rider tends to micromanage the steps from one. They tend to micromanage a little bit. We're doing the exact opposite. And we're saying, hey, I believe you. I trust you. Let's go find this person. Wow. I'm I'm just floored. I'm just It's a rush. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. And I can imagine how pumped everybody is when you do finally find somebody and hopefully they're okay, you know. But I think what both of you do and I wanna 
add again that both of you donate your time, you volunteer your time, you buy all of your equipment, you do this just because you want to help other people. And I think that's just so amazing. Sharon and Darcy, thank you so much. I really appreciate you sharing your time and your talents with us today. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. We have Dr. Kelly Vineyard with us, and she is a senior equine nutritionist at Purina Animal Nutrition. So, Dr. Vineyard, Sharon and Darcy said they can bring horse treats, but they can't carry a lot in the way of concentrates because they're loaded down with 40 pounds of rescue equipment. And I guess all of us would be a little concerned that these horses are going for 10 or 12 hours with basically nothing to eat. Is there something that you could recommend that they could take with them that wouldn't take up a whole lot of room or weigh a whole lot? Sure. I mean, that's definitely a unique challenge to this this type of work. A couple of things that come to mind. First of all, if they're in a situation where there's grass available or forage, you can always stop and let your horse do some intermittent grazing, like on the trail if there's time mm-hmm. or if it's available. But, you know, it might be in the middle of winter, so that might not be an option. The other thing that comes to my mind is I would want to maximize calories but minimize bulk. So look for something that's really uh, calorie dense, like the high fat supplement Amplify. It's 200 calories per pound. So it can give a horse pretty good little needed energy, a burst of energy, kind of in a small package. If you wanted something that had some fat and fiber built in, you could go with something like a high fat complete feed, like only 400, even just a pound or two for a couple of snacks throughout the day is going to be better than nothing. And they're both pretty nutrient dense. So you can get some good energy from that. That sounds really good. And then I was so impressed with how well they prepared their horses through training and everything that they do to mobilize very quickly. Now, is there a way that they could prepare their horses nutritionally before they go out just on a day-to-day basis? Well, these horses have such an unconventional job, you know, it's really amazing to me. So really, there's not the conventional feeding recommendation I can (laughs) can make with these types of horses, other than to just say, practice good horse nutrition practices as the individual requires. So maybe Kodak has a completely different body type than Gulliver. So you would just feed them individually to what fits their needs best. Now, in general, they're doing a lot of long hours at a slow pace, so at a walk mostly, mm-hmm. you know, maybe some trotting. That type of work draws more upon fat than carbohydrate for stored energy. So if you could incorporate some fat into their daily ration and, you know, get them to where they're storing a little bit of body fat, you know, that would ensure that they've got some kind of reserves in the tank for these days. They may be out working for long hours. So maybe these horses on the body condition score need to be more along the lines of a six versus a five, for example. Right. They're, they're not race horses. We're not looking at, for them to be racing fit. If they're a little bit on the five to six range, they've got a little bit of extra reserves in the tank, and that would be a good thing. That sounds really great. Anything else that you can add that might be helpful to a horse like this? And, and to me, this is the most challenging feeding situation ever. I just, I just can't imagine, you know. Right. I think just making sure the horse is not only fed up properly, but keeping them fit. I know they spend an awful lot of time just keeping these horses ready because you never know when they're going to be called upon. So 
not only make sure they're well fed, but also that they're in a good fitness program and they're fit enough to meet whatever demands they may face is going to be really important. Now, Dr. Vineyard, if I had a search and rescue horse, or even if I had a trail horse or an endurance horse, and I didn't know how to feed that horse, I could maybe call you, but what things would you look at to determine what we should feed this horse? The way I like to approach selecting the most appropriate feed for a horse is really taking each horse as an individual and looking at their, first of all, body condition score. Are they on the heavier side? Are they on the lighter side? So that would tell me if they're maybe a harder keeper, an easy keeper, and if I need to feed them either to maintain weight or maybe lose some weight or maybe gain some weight. The next thing I like to look at is their life stage. You're going to feed a mature horse much differently than you're going to feed maybe a two or three-year-old that's still growing and just starting their training program. You're also going to want to know the level of work that horse is doing. So a trail horse is kind of a broad category. Some horses that maybe get ridden once every week or two would be a trail horse. Or some of these search and rescue horses that are in a pretty rigorous training program, they might be getting ridden five days a week. So it really is more about how many hours a week is that horse being exercised, thinking about their level of work. Is it light, moderate, heavy? Mm-hmm. And then the last thing you want to ask, does this horse have any specific medical conditions or do they have good teeth or maybe bad teeth? Do they have insulin resistance? Or do they have any muscle metabolic concerns? So think about that too is kind of the last thing. And so for me, you know, I have a really good understanding of all our Purina feeds. So once I know all the answers to those questions, I can help someone with different options, either low-calorie options, higher-calorie options, or low-starch, high-starch, that type of thing. And not everybody has access to me, Kelly Vineyard, but the nice thing about Purina is we have a lot of experienced sales specialists around the country that are connected to our Purina dealers. So someone could go into the Purina dealer, they could either talk to the dealer employees, or they can ask to speak to the sales specialist and they can help people select the right feed. Or we also have a really informative website. People can go and read for themselves. They can submit questions. And they can even sign up for a 60-day feed trial with our Feed Greatness Challenge. Once they figure out a feed they want to try, they can sign up and and see for themselves if it's going to work for them. That's purinamills.com forward slash full rain, F-U-L-L-R-E-I-N. This has all been so interesting, especially because you might think a horse like Kodak is an unlikely search and rescue horse, especially due to his timid nature and his hard-to-catch attitude. But here's a horse who went from a nose-to-tail trail horse who really was almost in a rescue situation, and he turned into this fabulous, sensitive search and rescue horse. Not only that, but he turned out to be the best scent alert horse in their entire unit. That is such an amazing transformation. As we horse lovers know, sometimes a horse just like the work so much that he excels against all odds. It's a good reminder, though, that appearances can be misleading and that every horse should have a chance to try something new. You never know, that horse might turn out, like Kodak, to have a hidden talent. 
That's it for this episode of the Horse Nutrition Podcast. Thank you for listening to the story of Kodak on the Horse Nutrition Podcast by Purina. If you missed season one, you can go back on any podcast player and take a listen to all the past episodes. Learn more about all of Purina's equine products at purinamills.com forward slash full rain. F-U-L-L-R-E-I-N. The Horse Nutrition Podcast can also be found on the Horse Radio Network app. Just search for Horse Radio Network in the Apple or Android app stores, and you'll find 17 different shows all about horses right there. Thanks for tuning in.